2 Corinthians 5, New Testament, 2 Corinthians, 5th chapter. been asking you to pray for me in teaching, and I was thinking to myself earlier that maybe I should be asking you to pray for the students who have to listen to me to droning on for three hours straight from nine to noon. They, they might need more prayer than I do. Second <laughs> Corinthians 5. going to read from verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, reading through the end of the chapter. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation." Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This is the Word of God, perhaps one of the most treasured and theologically packed passages in all of Scripture. Believe it, rest in it, understand it, and make it the very hope of all your trust. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We need to understand what you've said. We need to receive it into our hearts. It's not enough to be aware but we must be brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that Thou art merciful, merciful to men, merciful to sinners. Now, as we gather in this place, though there may be some without hope and without God in this world, we're glad that there is extended to them a message foundation upon which they can build their hope. We pray that Thou will give help in the expression of Thy Word, help to the preacher, help to all who are gathered, that in this place we might know the stillness and the nearness of the triune God meeting with His people. Come, Holy Spirit. Acknowledge, Lord Jesus, without Thee we can do nothing. Extend thy kingdom in the face of the great enemy, we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning, beloved, we give consideration to what it is to be the friend of God. My focus, of course, was in light of the Lord's table, the desire that we might come to that occasion, and it is an occasion, an appointment which the Lord has given, a gift and a blessing that He has set apart for us that we might gather and remember. We're forgetful. <laughs> we forget. And the Lord understands the limitations of our minds, that we may know the truth and yet forget the importance of it, that we may be able to say, I'm aware and I know what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, and yet it, it grows more distant from our minds and then, as a result, less important to us in our living. So he sets a table before us, and he puts it in front of us 
that we might remember what He has done and recognize that He has shown great love to us in making us His friends. This evening, I wish to take a step back. Uh, for those of you who are still struggling with the idea of whether or not you're the friend of God, wondering if you have truly made your peace with God, whether your sins really are forgiven, I want to try and help you with the Word of God, try and help you. There's nothing more important in your life than that you know that your sins are forgiven and that your knowledge and awareness of the person and work of Jesus Christ has been appropriated by faith. That it's not just something that happened historically, it's something that's real, something that has changed you, something that has made you a child of God. That's my great desire. If we don't accomplish that, it matters little what else we accomplish. And so as in light of that and thinking about that, I turn your attention to verse 20 of this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. I stand as one in the words of Solomon, as waters are to the thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. I come to you with news from a far country, from heaven itself. News that comes to the sinner to give hope, to give an understanding of what God has provided. And I stand before, it may be those who are languishing in a desert, parched within your soul, having no peace, without God in this world, wondering whether your sins are forgiven, wondering whether you're ready, wondering whether when you die you will go to be with Christ. And in that pondering, in that questioning, I want to try and help you, and it is my obligation and privilege to stand before you as a preacher who has been given this commission to tell you that you can be reconciled to God. There's good news from a far country. I wonder what the angels who are present here tonight will report back, what they may say or communicate among themselves as they stand, as it were, over this gathering, assessing the response of men as the gospel is preached. I wonder, will they look in amazement, wondering how it could be that there are those in this gathering who will refuse to have Christ reign over them. I hope it is not so. And so tonight, as we look at this text for a short time, Be Reconciled to God is a simple title to the message, Be Reconciled to God. That's the driving thrust. That's the message. We made mention of this this morning. It is the privilege of those who are friends of God to know that they have been reconciled. But let us step back and make sure that we have come ourselves to understand that we have truly been reconciled to God. First of all, there is in this text, I see the implied, implied divine readiness. There is implied divine readiness. The message here shows, the language of this passage shows that God has made provision so that a message can go out to men that they may be reconciled to Him. It's as if there's been a contract drawn up and the Lord has drafted the contract and signed it, and then sends it simply for you to sign your name to it. And what it promises on that contract is the fact that your sins will be forgiven, and you'll be reconciled to God. That's the promise. And so it's been drafted. It's been written up. The work has been done. The Lord has made provision. And all you must do then is consent. Consent to the contract. Agree with the Lord in what He puts before you. So you can't stand here or sit here tonight and try to present, pretend yourself to be neutral. You must respond. The contract's before you. You can't say to yourself that I'm going to try and remain in a neutral position. You either agree with God or you disagree. You either sign in the way it's presented before you or you walk away in rebellion against what it is that He invites you to do. As we think about this divine readiness, I want us to think of the, the voices which call for your reconciliation, the voices which call for your reconciliation. Look at the text. Look what it says. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Do you not see in this text the very voice of God the Father? Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. As though God the Father 
did beseech you by us. There's a voice then from God the Father that comes to you, calling you, be reconciled to me. Be reconciled to me. But there's also here the voice of the Lord Jesus as well. And in his face we can see the very same echo and theme. Look at it. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. In other words, Christ comes alongside. The Son of God himself stands shoulder to shoulder, so to speak, with the Father with one voice. They call you. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. Don't stand away. Don't cut yourself off. Don't ignore this sweet invitation. Be reconciled. And we must assume the Spirit stands alongside as well. The Spirit which sent the Apostle Paul, the Spirit that, gave, that came on that occasion and gave indication to the church that Barnabas and Saul should be sent to go to the nations and carry this message. The very fact that he's been sent as an ambassador, he's been appointed by the Spirit of God to herald this same message. So we can assume the Spirit also bid you be reconciled to God. Do you not hear these voices? The voice of the triune God calling you, children, older people, all of you, be reconciled to God. Can you not hear them in harmony saying the same thing? Be reconciled to God. And the amazing thing is that are not they the offended party? Are they not the ones that have a right to be grieved at how we have lived? Is it not us that have rebelled against God? Is it not our turning against Him that has brought about this whole problem that we stand in? Cut off from God, alienated from the life of God. This is our fault. It is man that has brought this about. It is man that must be recognized as guilty. And yet here we find not man running after God, but God coming to man. God coming to the lost man who keeps running away from God. And in God's pursuit may continue to run away from God. And still there is this theme that keeps echoing after man as he pursues his sin. And goes on a path to hell that keeps saying, be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. Is there not also in the voice of divine providence, in its goodness to you, the goodness of God that should lead you to repentance? Is there not then in how God has preserved you to this hour, finds you in the house of God, sitting under the word of God, gathered among with the saints of God, being favored with this message of reconciliation? Does not providence also speak and say to you tonight, be reconciled? Look at the law of God. Does it not, even in its condemnation, urge you to be reconciled to God? As you see its thundering notes that expose your shortcomings, is it not in some tender, merciful fashion telling you why you must be reconciled to God? Does not the law then come and accuse you and show you to be existing in this position of shortcoming that therefore requires this reconciliation with God? And then as you look to the cross of Calvary, you see the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, does that not press upon your conscience this message? Be reconciled to God. All these are voices that unite together to tell us that we should be reconciled to God. But in addition to this, we may add the voices of saints of a bygone age. Ask Adam, Ask Eve if you could. Ask them what it is that they may say to you tonight as you stand lost. As they admit, we put you there. It was our rebellion that plunged all humanity into a state of sin and misery. But what would they say? Would they say, continue in that condition? Or would they not, with one voice, tell you, behold the Lamb of God, see the provision, see what He did for us as we tried to sow fig leaves together to cover ourselves in our nakedness and shame. See God take on the work. See God provide a lamb. See God shed blood. See God make reconciliation for us. See it. They would tell you tonight, despite what they have done, 
that you must be reconciled to God. Ask Noah. Ask Noah. As he watched almost the entire world perish in its sin, and then himself found to be a drunkard in his folly. Ask him. Even in his time of shortcoming, in his own fall, ask him, Noah, what would you say to us? He would say, be reconciled to God. Ask Abraham the idolater. Ask Isaac the coward. Jacob the deceiver, David the adulterer, Peter the denier. Ask them, what will they say? Be reconciled to God. This is what they will say. I know it. And Paul, the great persecutor, he comes along in our passage under inspiration and he tries to seize upon his readers, grab them by the lapels with his language. And he says, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. We've seen the voices then that call for your reconciliation. Note the happiness brought by your reconciliation. The happiness brought by your reconciliation. You might wonder what happiness would this bring? Well, I can tell you now, for one, we mentioned the parties of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they, they will certainly rejoice in your reconciliation. For the Lord does not extend this invitation and draw up this treaty for your good that he might then ignore your response to it. It will bring him great happiness. We know this. We know this. We know that the Father will rejoice. We know that the Son will rejoice. We know that the Spirit will rejoice. We see that indicated for us in the prodigal. Seeing the happiness and the joy, or even before that, when you, when you think of the response when the shepherd finds the one that's lost and carries it home on his shoulders rejoicing, and he says to his friends, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. The Lord Jesus rejoices when one is reconciled. And we assume also Father and Spirit enter into that same joy, for they are all partaking in and involved in the great reconciling work. In that same passage, we learn also of angels that are made to rejoice, invited to rejoice, told, rejoice with me. And so we're told that, that the, those who are in heaven, those angels, those beings in heaven, rejoice over one sinner that repenteth. And so they would be happy at re your reconciliation. They would rejoice and shout as they see you respond to this command, be reconciled to God. But not only the Trinity and the angels, but the preacher, the preacher, he will rejoice too, will he not? Surely that would be understood by Paul. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Can we not imagine the preacher seeing the success of the message being received, seeing it entering and penetrating unbelieving hearts? being transformed and turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, those that turn from idols to serve the living and true God, is not the preacher made glad when he sees this transformation? Is he not made to rejoice and sing for joy? Oh, he is, he is. Paul was no different to any preacher. Oh, we have to lament like Isaiah, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Is there no one listening? Will no one respond? But then there are those occasions when we see it penetrate. We see men and women weep their way to Calvary, see the great invitation, respond with all of their hearts and find peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there's great happiness in the Trinity and the angels and the preacher. There will also be great happiness in you. There will great happiness in you as well. Well, you may not understand it because you're fearful. You're fearful of what it might mean to become a Christian. Oh, I know that fear all too well. I was there. And many others here tonight were there as well. And we started contemplating. We, we stood in this valley of decision, as it were, wondering what it's going to cost us to, to obey the gospel and come to Christ. We thought all those things through. They went through our minds. We thought of the friendships that might be broken and the changes that might occur. Because we were, we were coming to this point where we're going to give our loyalty and allegiance to another. But we pressed in. 
Let the chips fall where they may, so to speak. We will have Christ, whatever comes. We stand as testimony this very night to say that we are made very happy by this reconciling grace has brought us into the arms of God. As we considered this morning, made us friends, friends of God. So we see here, there's implied divine readiness. Divine readiness. The Lord is ready. And all the parties under Him are ready. All the others that come alongside Him are ready for you to be reconciled and to rejoice in that reconciliation. But secondly, there's expressed great urgency. There's expressed great urgency. This is not something for you simply to say, okay, thank you for the message. I'll go and contemplate what you have said. There's urgency, first of all, in the work being done. In the work being done. What's being done? Well, look at what it says in verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. Christ is sending men across the world to preach this message to you. He is sending men that they, others might hear this message. It's, it, it can't wait. Men must be sent. There's an urgency to it. So to this day, thousands of years have passed. The centuries come and go. And the Lord keeps sending men to communicate this message. Making men to be ambassadors. Not waiting. Not saying there's, a, there's another chance after death. There's not. If you're to be reconciled to God, it must be here. It must be now. It must be in this life. And so there's this constant pressing urgency, which is why we lament that the laborers are few, and we pray the Lord of the harvest that He would send forth more laborers to this end, that they may be ambassadors. Ambassadors for Christ. Is He not worthy? Oh, is He not worthy to have men go in His cause, cross oceans, traverse lands, that they might bring this message be reconciled to God. This is why we do it. This is why we leave our families. It's why we leave what's comfortable, what is known, what we've, we're surrounded by when we grow up. We leave it all. Why? That we might bring this message, be reconciled to God. The work is not one entered in carelessly. There's great urgency but also not only in the work being done, but the word being sent. The word being sent is wrapped in language of urgency. What does the apostle say? He said, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. God did beseech you. The word beseech means to call to one side. It's the idea of summoning or entreating or exhorting. We beseech you. God seizing upon men. This message, Paul steps in to lay hold of them. We beseech you. It's like God coming through us to beseech you, to summon you, to exhort you. We pray you, we beg you, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Oh, Christian, never, never be shy to, to even beg sinners to repent and believe the gospel. The apostle felt the weight of that. He didn't go around heartlessly. He didn't share the gospel as if, as long as I just share the message, I have done my duty. He felt it within his own soul. He was a man who knew what it was to weep, to shed tears. His heart's desire, his prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He says in the face of the church and the challenge of maintaining the purity of the church amidst all of the assaults that she faces, I have told you before and now tell you again, even weeping, these enemies of the cross of Christ. There is understood then this urgency. The message is not one that is brought casually. It's brought with urgency, with a pressing sense that it must be responded to, that men must see it and grasp it. But why does God come so urgently to you? Why? Why is this needed? Why, why express such urgency? 
Paul, why write in this way? We're ambassadors for Christ. Okay, that's, we recognize you've been set apart to represent Christ, to do the work of Christ in terms of bringing the message and heralding that truth. But we come as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Do you see? Do you feel it? Why is this necessary? Why not just say, is the message not good enough for men to see its value? And therefore, you just, you know, it's like, it's like if we at church, we put out a sign and said, this coming Saturday, anyone and everyone can get a free full tank of gas. I mean, the place would be packed. They'd be coming all over the place to fill. They'd be bringing all their multiple cars. They might fill up their, their vehicles with gas. It wouldn't take long for that to spread. And men would respond with such a sense of appreciation. And you might imagine man in his sin that he would do the same. He would see what it is that's being put before him, that God condescends to man in his plight and urges upon him, here's a treaty of peace. Receive it. Sign now. But he doesn't. So it comes with urgency for a number of reasons. One, because up to now you have been indifferent. Up to now you've been indifferent. You're like Esau. Some of you may be like Esau, surrounded by the truth, saturated in the gospel. You've never known a time where you were ignorant of the fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Your entire, the entire history of your life and your memory is one that is filled with having put before you the good news of the gospel. And yet you despise it. Like Esau, you think little of Christ. To you, he is not precious. So the preacher comes seeing the indifference. He sees it, senses it. Oh, he senses it. He wonders about it. And he looks and he can't help but calculate the the frame of the recipients of the message. He can't help but make an assessment of those that are before him. He can't help it. Have you ever stood in a classroom and taught? Every teacher knows, is, is clued in at all. Any teacher knows what it is to detect. Are, are they engaged or are they not? Are they with me or are they not? You, you sense it. And the preacher's no different. He stands before men. He, he looks into their faces and he, he can't help but assess, are, are, are these people who are sincere? Are they with me? Are they getting it? Are they following along? Are they receiving it? Does it bring them gladness and joy? Do they appreciate it and value it? Do they understand what's at stake? Or are they indifferent? That's one reason why there's great urgency in how it comes. But not only indifference, secondly, because up to now you've been rebellious against these things. You have been rebellious. It's not just indifference, but it's outright rebellion. There are those occasions where the preacher learns that there's just rebellion here. The language of James when he says in James 4 that we are to submit ourselves to God. You see, the opposite in you, resistance to God, turning away. Have you ever seen a man fight against his conscience? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen a person who's wrestling? I mean, they know it. They, they acknowledge it, they, they recognize it, they're with you the whole way, but they're, they're in this, this frame of, of rebelling against the very truth that's being put before them. You break your heart. The preacher realizes it's hard enough just to get people to, to understand these things, never mind agree with them. But to see them understand it and agree and assent and then to, to kick against and say no. So it stirs in the heart of the preacher this sense of urgency. It flows from the compassion of Christ. Its heart bursts with this sense, don't you get it? Why rebel? So because you've been indifferent, because you've been rebellious, thirdly, because up to now you've procrastinated. 
So it's not that you're indifferent. You understand the value of it. And it's not that you're rebellious. There's an indication that you want it. But you're procrastinating. You're delaying. You're like Felix. As Paul stood before him and reasoned about righteousness and put before him the truth of the gospel. He sends him away and says, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. What's he doing? He's procrastinating. When I have a convenient season, when the time is right for me, which is not now, he procrastinates. How many, only God knows, only God knows how many will be the number in hell at the last who had intentions not to be there. The Lord comes tonight to you, my friend. He says, my son, give me thine heart. Do you sense it? Do you? Be reconciled to God. The Lord is so merciful. He comes time and time again. He echoes these words to us today through the prophet Ezekiel. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die? Do you feel the urgency? Sense it? There is nothing more important on your schedule than that you be reconciled to God. And it's not like the Lord has made it difficult, has He? He says, so How can I be reconciled to God? Isaiah 45 22, look unto me and be ye saved. Look unto me and be ye saved. Look. You say, where do I look? It tells you. Look to the Lord. Look to Christ. It said prophetically of those that will look upon Him whom they have pierced. Look there. Look upon the one with five bleeding wounds. Think of what he said himself, the Lord Jesus, John 6, 40. Everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. See the Son, believe on him. That's how the reconciliation takes place. It's an amazing thing. <laughs> you know, imagine, just, just think of the massive transactions that have taken place in individual lives and across the world in terms of peace between nations and agreements between leaders. Massive things have, have pivoted. The, the, the great political, significant Things have occurred through two or more parties sitting in a room, signing a piece of paper and being true to the word. It's transformed nations. Agree. And this 
The same thing will transform your life. Whereas it were, you sit down with God and He puts before you, look on the Son. Believe on Him. You'll have everlasting life. Finally, there's promised complete acceptance. There's promised complete acceptance. Be reconciled to God. The language of that, again, is packed full with a sense of acceptance, isn't it? God is not pulling you together with Him in order for Him to be constantly full of disdain towards you, to despise you, to talk mean things behind your back. It's acceptance. Be reconciled to God is acceptance. And is this not what the world craves? Isn't it? Just to be accepted? Is it not what so many feel causes such turmoil in them? They wonder, they question whether they're accepted within their family, accepted by one or both parents, accepted by their spouse. Such craving. It fills the hearts of so many. Well, let's, let's look at what this reconciliation does. This acceptance, this complete acceptance. First, reconciliation means peace of conscience. Peace of conscience. When a man knows that he is in favor with God and reconciled to God, then the the disputes and the debates in his conscience are silenced. Now, they may raise up every so often. They're nagging that happens, but it does not compare to the, the non-reconciled, where they stand, to be reconciled and have within the conscience this, this, this silence. To know the efficacy of the cross. To know you have a mediator between God and men. To know that Christ stands representing the elect and presenting them without fault. Brings peace of conscience. The stormy doubts are stilled when we are reconciled to God. And this is what Paul declares in Romans 5, 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. There's, there's no friend like the Lord, is there? You want to have omnipotence on your side through life. God to be your friend, as we considered this morning. But you need to be in agreement with Him. You need to be reconciled to Him. If you're not reconciled, you can't have it. Can two walk together except to be agreed? He puts this treaty, this contract, this invitation goes before you. Sign it. Be reconciled to God. When you do, the conscience is stilled. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. There's such, such victory in that. Such an answer for the conscience. It torments us. It's our past comes into our view betimes and we wrestle over it, wondering, and we, what's our answer? I'll try better, Lord. No, a thousand times no. Blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth me from all sin. 
I'm reconciled. Secondly, reconciliation means peace in all conditions. Peace in all conditions. Those who are reconciled to God are best placed and positioned to have peace in every condition of life. Now, this doesn't always practically work out in such a way that we exhibit perfect peace. I get it. But the child of God is greatly equipped to be in this position. Greatly equipped. We may have to learn it. It may take some time, like the apostle. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Philippians 4.11 But look what he says. Flip over to the, the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 6. Other things could be read here. He talks about his stripes and imprisonments and so on in verse 5. But just look what he says in verse 10. 2 Corinthians 6, 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. This is the standing of those reconciled. There may be sorrow. You're, you're, there isn't the removal of all the sorrows of life. And being reconciled to God actually adds upon you burdens you never possessed before. For Paul, for example, the care of the churches, above every other burden, the care of the churches. That was new to him when he was reconciled to God. It weighs on him, it weighs on him every day, but, but always rejoicing. Always rejoicing. Not brought to this endless sense of despair and a dark cloud that seems never to lift. There's joy. To be reconciled to God is to have access to a peace in all the changes, in all the troubles, in all the anxieties that are here in this life. Because you're reconciled. So it can be said, my heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. That's what reconciliation brings. And then you'll learn over time, and you'll have to go in for <laughs> little update classes, little refresher courses every now and again to learn to be able to say with Paul that we can glory in tribulations. Glory and tribulations. Who else but the reconciled can say this? Peace in all conditions. But also reconciliation means peace in the time of death. Peace in the time of death. It's coming, friends. It's coming. Like a freight train that can't be stopped, it is coming. Death. It is coming for every last one of us. Should the Lord tarry in His return, it will just steamroll over everything in its path. Death is coming. It's coming for you. It's coming for those you love. It's pressing in every single day. Death. We can try to solve ourselves with some imaginary comforts. We can say, well, it's only one life and let's just live it up and enjoy ourselves, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or we can see the triumph of the gospel. Death is not something to be feared, but something that through Christ has actually been transformed into a portal to everlasting bliss. Who else but the reconciled can know 
that there's one that's with him in the valley of the shadow of death. Peace in the time of death. This is part of what I do every week. <laughs> I don't always say it explicitly. In general, I don't say it very often. Occasionally I will. Or certainly occasionally I have in the past. Well, a big part of what I'm doing here, standing before you Lord's Day by Lord's Day, and maybe in part Wednesdays as well, but certainly on the Lord's Day, great emphasis on this, in terms of an underlying motive and something I'm endeavoring to do, is preparing you to die well. Because I don't know what's in your future in many regards, but I know that is. And I want you to be ready. Truly ready. I want to see in your face and hear from your language a note of victory. That the gospel has so come into your soul and produced such fruit that in the face of death you are unmoved. Indeed, there's a part of you I can't help but to desire to be with Christ, which is far better. Be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. It's a weighty obligation. I stand before you with Paul as an ambassador for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. What thunders forth then from this language is that as you stand pondering how to respond to the message, it's not your response to me, but to God. Paul makes it clear. This message goes forth from him as if it is from Christ himself. And it is no different here. Not because I am special, but any man who stands before any people and in Christ's name says, be reconciled to God, speaks in Christ's stead. So as you sing language of affection for Jesus Christ, as you bow your head in posture of reverence before the presence of Christ in this place, we come to this point, what will you do with Jesus, which is called Christ? What will you do? Be reconciled. Be ye reconciled to God. Don't delay. Children, don't delay. Come now. Come here. Pastor, what do I say? When we come to the end and we close our eyes and we bow our heads, you simply ask, Lord, I want to be reconciled. I'm willing to be reconciled. I desire to be reconciled. Save me. He will. Look and live. Sign the contract. Agree with thine adversary whilst thou art in the way with him. <laughs> Don't make God your enemy by neglecting this treaty of peace. Be reconciled to God. Let's bow together in prayer. In just a moment, we'll rise from our seats and we'll talk with people. You may go home, you may go downstairs, but you will find yourself becoming 
busied with conversation and other things. It is here in these moments that it is time to seek the Lord. It is here in these moments where we remember that now is the day of salvation. Call upon Him. Call upon Him now. Lord, we seek Thee. There are many here tonight eternally grateful and full of thanksgiving that they have been reconciled to God, that they've been saved, cleansed, made new. For those still standing afar off, those still without oil in their lamps, We pray that Thou wilt give them grace to come, to come now. Oh God, save, forgive, and bring joy to heaven and to earth when one sinner repents. Go with thy church this week. Empower her witness. Give grace even to those who will gather in sorrow. Extend thy kingdom through the light and the salt of thy people. Bless her fellowship May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.